what a powerful time of worship. Thank you, Ben, praise team, choir. What a privilege it is to be able to worship the Lord. Um, I think, again, kind of on a theme here this morning, but I, I just fear we take that for granted so often, right? I mean, that we get to be in the presence of our Creator and, and worship Him in spirit and in truth, and He gives us the ability to do that. You know, every now and then, uh, humans do things that, that draw attention, right? Uh, superhuman feats is what I'm thinking of right now. Someone will do something that is just contrary to uh, human reasoning, human ability, exceeds human ability, and of course that draws attention, and we pay attention to those things because it's rare. It doesn't happen very often. And there are a couple of examples that I found just doing a little bit of research. Um, this is, and I'm, I'm probably not going to pronounce her name correctly, but Vesna Volovic. She was a flight attendant, a former Serbian flight attendant, and what makes her exceptional is that she survived, and this is, you know, I've done everything I can to verify this. She was, um, I think, on Oprah at one point. I mean, she was, uh, uh, got a lot of publicity for this, and you'll know why in a minute. She survived a fall of 33,330 feet without a parachute. Now, that didn't happen every day. I mean, that's, what happened was, and the, the circumstances make it even more uh, uh, tragic. Uh, she was on a flight. A terrorist had planted a bomb on the plane. The bomb exploded. The plane broke up, and she was the only one that survived the crash. Amazing, right? I mean, you don't you don't think you don't hear about things like that. There's another guy, uh, a man by the name of Dean Carnesis. He is like a modern day Forrest Gump. Okay, here's what I mean by that. You see him running. That's what he does well. He is known for having run. Uh, a 135-mile thir- ultra marathon. I run to the end of the parking lot, and I'm out of breath. 135-mile marathon. He's also, uh, he did this across Death Valley, the 135-mile marathon, in the blistering heat, which makes it even more challenging. But he's also run a marathon to the South Pole in temperatures well below zero. In addition to that, here, he he keeps going. Besides these, he's most famous, as if that wasn't enough to be famous, for his well-publicized event in which he completed, get this, 50 different marathons on 50 consecutive days in all 50 American states. I mean, I bet he slept a long time after that, when when you imagine. But we see things like this, and you wonder how... Can human beings do things like that? Superhuman feats is how I classify those because I don't have any other explanation for it, right? Either someone has supernatural strength to save one, someone when a car's falling on them or survives a 33,000-foot fall or runs 50 marathons in 50 days in 50 consecutive states. Human beings have the capacity to do incredible things, but here, here's... The thing. You know, sadly, uh, Vesna passed away a few years ago. Um, Human beings, as great as they can be, that just reminds us that we are limited, aren't we? Um, We are temporary, our bodies are, souls are eternal, but even with great feats of strength accomplishments, we're still limited on our own. We can do a lot on our own. But we are limited. Thankfully, we serve a God who's capable of doing more than human beings ever could. More than we could ever fathom. More than we could ever comprehend. Above all, that we could ever imagine. And we need to be reminded of the economy of God's presence. The power of God's presence. Because with his presence comes his power. And the Israelites needed that reminder in today's passage. We left them in pretty good shape last week. They listened to the word of the Lord. They repented. They obeyed. God's presence was with them. But we see here today, as often happens in serving God, God's people hit another little hiccup. And they're fulfilling his plan, his, his 
command to rebuild his house. So we'll be in Haggai chapter 2. We're going to finish out our three-week series on Haggai today. We'll be in chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 1 through 9 of Haggai chapter 2 together. Beginning in verse 1, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, to the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and to the remnant of the people. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem to you like nothing by comparison? Even so, be strong, Zerubbabel. This is the Lord's declaration. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Work, for I am with you. The declaration of the Lord of armies. This is the promise I made to you when you came out of Egypt. And and my spirit is present among you. Do not be afraid. He's reminding them again, I'm with you. My spirit, my presence is with you. For the Lord of armies says this, Once more in a little while I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will come and I will find this house, I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of armies. The silver and the gold belong to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. The final glory of this house will be greater than the first, said the Lord of armies. I will provide peace in this place. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. So, we're covering part three of this series in Haggai called Passionately Pursuing the Presence of God. Hopefully being reminded, being challenged that we need to understand how desperately we need God's presence in, his, in our lives. And we need to pursue that each day. The children of Israel had come back from exile. Uh, they had begun rebuilding the temple. But somewhere along the way, they got sidetracked by the fact that their homes, like the temple, were in, in, in rubble. They were a rubble pile. So they turned their attention to their homes, uh, to building schools, to building whatever they needed, and left the temple. They got the foundation complete. They set up the altar, but they left the remainder of the project on hold. And so God, 15 years passed, and God asks, what's the condition of my house? They were reminded that their priorities, or they were shown their priorities, had gotten out of whack. So, so God speaks through Haggai to challenge them to return to rebuilding the temple, to get their priorities in order, to begin again pursuing God's presence, because the temple in the Old Testament, that was the presence of God. That's where God dwelt, like he does within believers today. We are his temple And so by neglecting the temple, they were neglecting God's presence. And they needed God's presence in their lives, just as we do. But thankfully, they listened. They heard the word of the Lord. They responded. They repented of their sin. They turned back to God and began again rebuilding the temple. And in an instant, not a week later, not a month later, in an instant, God said, I am now with you. My presence is with you. They experienced again God's presence in their lives. And so we left there last week. What we see this week is that there's a problem that remains. And it shows us uh, a little bit of a glimpse of their expectations about what God was going to do in the future. The problem was the foundation for the ne- this second temple was smaller than the first one. And, and listen, on the surface, not a huge deal... But when you really think about it, what does that say about their expectation of what God was going to do in the future? You can almost hear them saying, and God calls it like it is, it's never going to be like it used to be. It'll never be the same as it once was. And that was really their problem. But God was with them. They needed to be reminded yet again. Yeah, they were different. They were a different group of people. A long time had passed since the Jews had gone into exile. But God was with them, and that's really all they needed, was to know that God's presence was going to be with them. They misunderstood his presence, and as a result, God is correcting them. He's telling them now they need to correct that misunderstanding. The people of God needed a proper understanding of the presence of God. Before we dig in this morning, I just want to ask a question, okay? I want us to think about this, all right? What if... The greatness of God that we just sang about 
and do sing about was really experienced in the ministry of this church. I I want you to think about that for a moment. We sing about it every week. We read about it in his word. We believe in it. You're here today because either you're seeking and you don't know it or because you believe that God is the creator of the universe and he's worthy of worship and he's the one who has the answers that you need for life and his purpose and his kingdom. You believe the stories of all that he's done through scripture. You know, forget super, superhuman feats, parting the Red Sea, you know, healing the leper. I mean, all of the great miraculous things that we've seen. What if we lived in anticipation of that and true faith in that and experienced that in our lives and in this church in the future? What we need is a new beginning and embracing the economy of God's presence, what he's capable of doing. And first, we need some reminders of this economy. And the first is this. God is into character, not physical appearance. We need to realize God's into character, not physical appearance. We see that through Scripture, right? We see that when he chose David to be king over his brothers. David at the time was younger. Um, Jesse didn't even bring him to the lineup for Samuel to look at. Because he was younger, he was probably smaller at the time. You know, we got this idea that David was a small guy. Not necessarily, but at that time he was young. He was younger than his brothers. The firstborn should have been the, the logical choice. And when, that, when, he, when God said it wasn't him, Samuel drew his attention, focused on another son. And God said, no, I've got in mind someone else. Man looks at the outward appearance, but I look at the heart. God is in the character. And we see this in God's description. You've heard of a Proverbs 31 woman probably, right? And the description of a godly woman with godly character. And we see this in Proverbs 31. God's opinion of beauty. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord. That's for all of us. Someone who fears God. Speaking about character. Who fears God is to be praised. Give her the reward of her labor. And her, let her works praise her at the city of gates. I mean, God looks directly at our hearts. He sees our desires. He knows how much we love him. And how much we love him is proven by how much we serve him and how faithful we are to obey him when he tells us to do something. When he calls us into action. How much we worship him. How much we spend time with him. Do we do it to check something off our list? Or do we do it because we're passionately pursuing his presence in our lives? And we want to know him intimately. In our lives. In his book, Your God is Too Small, J.B. Phillips write this. He said, There are, for example, uh, those who, for example, those who are considerably worried about the thought of God simultaneously hearing and answering the prayers and aspirations of people all over the world. That may be because their mental picture of, of God is of a harassed telephone operator answering callers at a switchboard of superhuman size. So what's your, what's your picture of who God is? How do you view him? Because God is not only into character, he's also into supernatural strength through human weaknesses. He sees somebody like David who others would look over and he sees his heart and he says, I can work through him to defeat a giant. I can work through him to lead a nation. But we many times view God as this this busy telephone operator who's got more on his plate than he can handle. That he's trying to, to work in a million different directions because we know we couldn't do what he does. But it's better J.B. Phillips says, to just say, I believe in a God who can. So the question for us, we say this, but do we really believe in a God who can? Are we trying to put limits on God and what he can or can't do? Because there's nothing that God can't do. Everything is possible with God. He's the God who walked with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We talked about that a few weeks ago through the fiery furnace. He's the God who was with Daniel in the lion's den and kept those lion's mouths closed and protected his servant. The same God we serve today. He's the God who was with Moses and parted the Red Sea so his people could travel safely across and then guess what? Defeated the entire Egyptian army as they attempted to cross. He's the same God, talking about David, who gave him the power, gave him the ability through a small stone and a sling to bring down that giant. 
It's the same God that we serve. He's the God that raised Jesus from the dead, who gave him, who defeated death and gives us the ability to defeat death because of what he did through his power and his strength. He's the God who's greater than my ability to understand or explain, comprehend, but he is a great God who can do whatever he wants. And when he calls us to action, we have to believe that God can. And not try to figure out how he can, but just believe that he can and trust him. And we show our trust with instant obedience. To their credit, listen, they've still got some issues here. And there are going to be issues you have to work out when you walk in faith. But to their credit, when the people of Israel heard the command of God to rebuild the temple, they realized where they were off and they immediately corrected course, repented. They, they obeyed instantly, and they instantly experienced once again God's presence. So how big is your God? Ephesians 3.20 assures us, Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. He can do above all than we can ever ask or think. The third thing we need to understand before we really get into this is that God is into divine anointing, not human ability. You know, they are saying we can't. You know, and they're right. They can't. We can say that. Whatever it is God's calling us to do, we can't. And we're right. We can't, but God can. It's not about our ability. It's about whether or not we have his anointing, whether or not he's called us, whether or not we have his presence working in and through us. God often works through the most unexpected and unlikely people. I mean, look at his band of followers, Jesus. I mean, fishermen common people. You had some uncommon in there too, but mostly they were just average, ordinary people that no one would expect. No one would have taken Peter and pulled him out of a group of people and expected him to be the leader of the New Testament church. I mean, God chose and does choose many times unexpected, unlikely people and the reason he does that is because, listen, when, when we know our insufficiency and when God does something incredible through someone that's beyond whatever they could do naturally, it gives him the most glory. I mean, his, his power is on full display. And we see that in the disciples. We see that in, in really all of the leaders. Again, you know, many, many examples, but Moses, I mean, he, he, he resisted to the bitter end, right? Until God finally basically said, okay, Moses, be quiet. <laughs> Enough's enough. It's time. You don't understand. You're right. You can't, but I can. And he did incredible things through Moses time and time and time again and there was no doubt it was God working through these people and if we trust him if we will have faith there will be no doubt that God's working through us the children of Israel didn't realize this at this point that's where they're off right now they also didn't realize the tools that they had though I mean they had the promise of God's presence and really that's all they needed but he's promising to work through them Haggai 2.5, this is the promise I made to you, he says. God says, when you came out of Egypt and my spirit is present among you, don't be afraid. I'm with you. God is basing the promise of his presence on the covenant he made with Israel. And God keeps his covenants. He keeps his promises. He's faithful. He's always been faithful. He has in his word and he has in our lives. If we think back on the faithfulness of God. He's been faithful. He knows that my experiencing his presence, though, is vital to walking in faith. And he promises that he will allow me to do that as long as I turn to him in faith and obey him in faith. He wants me to experience his presence and power. As a matter of fact, he wants it a whole lot more than I do. But he's patient, and he works, and he draws us. And if we respond, we learn more, we experience more, and we crave him more. And that's what he wants. So how do we act in a way that shows we have a proper understand of the economy, uh, understanding of the economy of God's presence? Well, first, he's given the nation of Israel an assignment. And one thing they've done right is that they've accepted their assignment. He's given us an assignment. We need to accept that assignment individually, corporately. He's given us an assignment. You know, situations like the one that the children of Israel were facing, they... We face situations like that that get us down emotionally. We look at, we survey uh, what's in front of us. We see 
the limitations, we see the deficiencies, we see the challenges, and it's easy to get discouraged, and that's what, that's what happened here. We find ourselves thinking that our efforts are useless. We think we, we, will, we might as well give up. It'll never be like it was. Doesn't matter. There aren't enough of us. There aren't as many of us as there used to be. We can't do what was once done, so we might as well just give up. And God has a message for the Israelites. He has a message for anybody, those of us who might think that way. He says that he knows how we feel, and it's true that the work that we are doing is not the same work that was done before, but that really doesn't matter. Verses 2 and 3, speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, to the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and to the remnant of the people. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem to you like nothing by comparison? Here's what I love about this section. God is not only calling them out for their lack of faith. He's not denying what they're seeing. God is calling it like it is. He's saying, you know what, guys, you're right. You're not what you once were. You know, you're not as big as you once were. You're a remnant of what you once were, the nation of Israel. The new temple was not going to, in this moment, be as glorious as the old one. They're getting all down and discouraged, and he's saying, you know what, you're right. That It's not going to be as big as it once was. It's not going to be as elaborate as it was before it was destroyed. The people, you're not, you're not as numerous as you once were. He's, he's just calling it like it is. The kingdom, the nation of Israel in its current state was not what it used to be, but that was okay because, remember, go back, God's into character, not physical appearance. He's into supernatural strength, not human weakness. He's into divine anointing, not human ability. He's saying, you're right. Their size and ability, though, didn't matter. Because God was with them and he had a plan for them. He had an assignment for them that was going to be different than what they had done before. The past was gone. They needed to accept that and they needed to accept their assignment for the future. They needed to look toward the future, believing that anything is possible as long as God was with them. We need to do the same. You know, one, one of the things that uh, I don't think Shirley's in here. Shirley's been doing something in the office the past couple of weeks. She's been going through a lot of historical documents, Shirley, right? A lot of pictures, a lot of pictures. Some of them pretty amusing, right? Uh, some documents pretty amusing. I'll spare you, but, uh, uh, but, but interesting though, right? I mean, tons of history going back to the 60s. Um, lots of interesting things. And going through those pictures, it's easy to see that this church is not what it once was. It's not the same as it was, right? A lot of those pictures from the Family Life Center. You say, we don't have a Family Life Center. That's right, because it collapsed about 10, 12 years ago. The church, you can see from pictures, was at that time larger than it is now. It's easy to look back on that, just like the Israelites did, and say, look at what we don't have, right? Look at what we once were. But we can't do that. The nation of Israel couldn't do that. We can't live there. It's okay to look back. There's plenty we can learn from the past, and we need to. We need to cherish the past. But here's the point. We can look back and say, oh, those were the glory days, right? And we can live in those glory days, and we can forget about the fact that God's got a glorious future ahead of us. Because I believe that he does. We need to learn from the past. We need to know the past. We need to study the past. We need to cherish the past. But I'm here to tell you, I believe with all of my heart that the best days are ahead of Wall Highway Baptist Church. I believe God's got a plan for us. And yeah, we're different than we were. Every church is. No church stays the same. No person. You're different than you were 10 years ago. Right? If you've been alive 10 years, I know a few of us in here aren't. But you were different. I'm watching my kids change overnight. You're, we all change. But, and change is hard, but here's the thing. God's got a beautiful future plan for you, your family, for this church family, if we will follow him. I believe that. I wouldn't be here if I didn't. But we have to trust him. And we've got to be willing to accept the past. And we've got to accept our assignment for the future. God has put us here for a purpose, and we need to, here, here's what we do in the meantime. Here's what we do to, to put ourselves in a position of that. Are you ready? We focus on growing closer to him, and as we do that, 
If we focus on him, make him first, make him the center, we will grow closer to each other as a church. We need to do that. We need to, to grow in unity. And then we serve him faithfully. There's going to be plenty in the future he calls us to do. We're going to talk the next couple of weeks about some of the things we're going to be doing in the immediate future. However, there's plenty that we know we should be doing right now, right? We serve him faithfully as we reach out to the people around us, our community. To put it another way, we need to love God, love people, share Jesus, and make disciples. There's enough in that sentence to keep us busy 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's our mission statement, by the way, and we're going to talk more about that next week. But we need to focus. If we focus on those things, we will be in a position to experience God's presence and his work in a powerful way. We need to accept our assignment. Then we need to remain strong as we accomplish God's purposes. Remain strong. Endure. Persevere. Look at verse 4. But now the Lord says, Be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all of you people still left in the land. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago, talking about God's presence and how we see this repeated over and over again, this encouragement to be strong. And, and often, God or one of his messengers has to tell someone else or be told to be strong. They, they have to be reminded of this. Moses delivered the final charge to Israel before he, they crossed the Jordan into the promised land, before he, he died. He told the nation of, this, of Israel this in Deuteronomy 31.6, Be strong and courageous. Don't be terrified or afraid of them, those they would be coming against. For the Lord your God is the one who will go with you. He will not leave you or abandon you. Be strong, he says. Joshua, Moses' successor. Immediately after, Joshua chapter 1, he stands on the far side of the Jordan to begin what God had called them to do to cross the Jordan. And God appeared to him with a threefold repetition of the charge that Moses had just given the people. Verse 6, be strong and courageous, for you will distribute the land I swore to their ancestors to give them as an inheritance. Above all, be strong and very courageous to observe carefully the whole instruction that my servant Moses commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left. So that you will have success wherever you go. Haven't I commanded you? Be strong. Again, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And then even the people joined in. Verse 18 of the same chapter, Joshua 1. They said, anyone who rebels against your order and does not obey words, uh, your words and all that you commanded him will be put to death. Above all, be strong and courageous. This, this rep, God's comforting them, he's reminding them, and they're reminding themselves. Be strong, we need to be strong. In other words, it's going to be hard, but we've got to be strong. God is with us. Later, Joshua tells the people in Joshua chapter 10, 25, he says to them, do not be afraid or discouraged. Be strong and courageous, for the Lord, the Lord will do all the... All, all, to all the enemies you fight. This to all the enemies. He will, he's giving them victory. Be strong and courageous. And then David, again, he gives a charge like this to Solomon when he's about to pass the baton of leadership in regard to building the temple. In First Chronicles 28, 20, David said to his son Solomon, be strong and courageous and do the work. It's going to be a big task, but do the work. Don't be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He won't leave you or abandon you until you fit you, until all the work for the service of the Lord, Lord's house, is finished. In the New Testament, we see the same thing. Paul, in Ephesians 6.10, finally be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Repetition is characteristic here. And... and these passages, these verses I just read, and it's the same in Haggai chapter 2, verse 4. The words be strong are repeated three times. Something about that number three, right? Be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Jeshua, son of Jehozadak. Be strong, all you people still left in the, the land. He repeats his words. God repeats his words precisely because of their discouragement. He repeats his words in his word because we tend to get discouraged. It's easy to get discouraged. 
When, when we see these texts where God or one of his messengers says to be strong, the ones we just looked at, they have another very important feature that we don't need to overlook. Why can we be strong? What reason do we have for being strong and having courage? Well, it's the promise of God's presence. Moses said, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. Joshua was told, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. David told Solomon, for the Lord my God... The Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. And then Haggai, God says, for I am with you, said the Lord of heaven's armies. My spirit remains among you just as I promised you when when you came out of Egypt. And God tells us, Paul's words, or Jesus' own words, he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm with you always to the end of the age. He promises to be with you, to be with us. And here's a truth that we all should understand and, and appreciate. God's presence is what's ma- what makes his people strong. It's his presence in our lives. In ourselves, we are not strong. They were right. They could not do it. They were, they were nowhere near as strong as they once were. The truth is they were never that strong in and of themselves. They were big, they were mighty, but they were big and mighty and powerful because God's presence was with them and did incredible things through them. In ourselves, we can't, but God can. So we have to remain in him, passionately pursuing his presence in our lives. We also need to work hard. Let's not get the idea here that God just says, sit back, relax, and I'll do everything. He could, but he chooses to involve us. There's obedience involved. Don't forget, the nation of Israel needed to get to work. They had work to do. God had given them an assignment. Yeah, he would strengthen them. He would be with them. They could not do it on their own, but they still had a part in it. They had to get to work. And now get to work. Verse 4, for I am with you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Get to work. Now, I found a story. It's been several years ago now, but it struck me. This is a guy by the name of Charlie Reynolds. And here's the interesting thing. In this picture, Charlie is 96 years old, and he was still working for a paper company, uh, a, you know, a, a news, uh, newspaper distribution that he had started, a business he had started years before in Swindon, Wiltshire. And, and the, the amazing thing about Charlie, uh, among the fact that he's 96, he's still working. He, at the time, was still working for this company. His son ran it at that time. He was still working. But, but even more amazing than that, he had a paper route that he did until he was 88 years old. So it had only been a few years since he had done his paper route. He was still working for the company, the counter, the first half of the day he would work the counter. And he, listen, if that wasn't enough, guess how he got to work every day? He rode his bike to work every day, 96 years old. Rode his bike to work every day. His son was 64, and at the time of this article, they were going to celebrate his son's 65th birthday by both of them retiring at the same time. I guess his son just didn't have it in him to do what his dad did. But 96 years old, the guy's still biking to work every day, working at least half a day, and he talked about how his work kept him alive. I mean, he talked about how he loved it because, especially working the counter, but doing his paper route too, he interacted with people. He had friendships. He had relationships. And I can't imagine that riding his bike to work every day didn't, I can't imagine that hurt either, keeping him healthy, right? He he stayed active. He knew that there was a job to do, and he did it. He enjoyed doing it. He got to work. Now, I I read a story uh, about a guy like Charlie And then I try to think of excuses why not to do things God's called me to do, right? I mean, it's hard to have excuses when you see somebody like that that just continues to go and go and go. And the reality is we can all come up with excuses as to why not to do something, whether it's what God's called us to do or something that we just need to do because it's part of our responsibility as adults or or students or whatever, but no excuse, we, we covered this a couple of weeks ago, no excuse is, is really good enough. I mean, you know, an excuse is just that. It's, it's, it's an excuse. But we need, God calls us to work, and we need to get to work doing what he's called, God's called us to do. God wants us to do our part. And we have, listen, every one of you here today, watching wherever you are, 
you have an important part, a vital part in God's kingdom work. God created you to be you. He's going to make you what he wants you to be if you'll put your faith and trust in him if you haven't already. But he created you with purpose. He created you to be a part of his kingdom work. But we have to follow him. We have to seek him, pursue him, obey him, his presence living in and through us to accomplish that purpose. But when he says act, we've got to act. As we've already seen, the Israelites had to get to work before they could experience God's presence again. They had gotten to work, but they're discouraged. But what they were learning and what they would learn is that God gives us all a job and he expects us to do our part. We have to work for the Lord. But with his power comes his ability, and with that comes the ability to live without fear. That's another characteristic in all those passages, right? Do not be afraid. We don't have to be afraid of what the future holds. Verse 5, this is the promise I made to you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit is present among you. Don't be afraid. There's no need to be afraid. The, The children of Israel had the promise of God's presence. When you have God's presence in your life, you don't be a, have to be afraid of what may or may not happen in the future because you're secure. Even if the unthinkable happens, even if your life ends, you're still secure if you are his. And you will be in his presence for all of eternity. Another way we could put this is, if you fear God, you don't have to fear anything else. If I fear God, if I have a healthy reverence for him, if I fear his presence, his punishment, like we talked about, if I, if, I, if I really believe he is who he says he is, I worship him as God. Yes, he's my father. I have a loving relationship with him, but he's still God. He's holy. He's separate. He's righteous. He's powerful. If I fear God, then I know I don't have to be afraid of anything else because nothing can touch God. And as long as I'm him, I'm, I'm his, nothing can touch me from an eternal perspective because I'm his for eternity. The children of Israel were looking back, and from that perspective, the present looked pretty bleak, and nobody denied that, not even God. Their present wasn't what, what, wasn't what it once was. But God spoke them, to them, and he directed them once again toward the future. Now, if you look back, you're eventually going to run into something, right? Or fall down or something. Sometimes we need to turn around and focus on what's ahead. We need to learn from the past. It's important. But where you've been is not near as important as where you're going. And we need to focus on that. And, and the, the people of Israel needed to focus on that. And God's redirecting their attention. He wanted them to focus on the future. What they couldn't see in the present was that their present was leading to a future that would make even the temple of Solomon look dingy. I'm talking about eternity. Right? God was working through his people towards something that they couldn't even fully comprehend. That you and I can't fully comprehend. He's still working through his people to get to that. Look at verses 5 through 9 again. This is the promise I made to you when I came out of Egypt. When you came out of Egypt, my spirit is present among you. Don't be afraid, for the Lord of armies says this, Once more in a little while I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. The sea and the dry land, I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of armies. The silver and gold belong to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. The final glory of this house will be greater than the first, said the Lord of armies. I will provide peace in this place. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. We read through that and it sounds wonderful, but there's so much here. If you dig a little deeper, you realize there's more than they would have even understood. The promises that God gives his people can be applied to our lives. Let's look at it. He says in verse 6, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, for I will shake the nations. And God would protect the Israelites. He would shake up their enemies. If you fast forward to verse 21 and 22 of chapter 2, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and destroy the power of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overturn chariots and their riders, horses, and their riders will fall each by their brother's sword. So there was an immediate promise for them. But we have a promise that is very similar. God will once again shake the heavens and the earth at the end of time. Hebrews 12, 26 and 27, his voice shook the earth at that time. But now he has promised yet once more. I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. 
This expression yet once more indicates the removal of what can be shaken, the earth, everything temporary, that is created things, so that what is not shaken, what cannot be shaken, will remain. What are the things that cannot be shaken? God and anyone who is in Christ. We find security in the next verse, Hebrews 12, 28, where we're reminded that we as believers are a part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Verse 28, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let, let us be thankful. By it, we may, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe, fear, for our God is a consuming fire. We will one day share we, we will not be shaken because he cannot be shaken. And one day we will share the glory of Christ when he establishes his kingdom on earth. But he also made a promise in this passage to fulfill his plan for salvation. The treasure of all nations will come to this temple and I will fill this house with glory. Now, that literally means desired people or desired things. It could have meant that the people would bring their silver and gold to Jerusalem, fill the temple once again with silver and gold. Verse 8 talks about the silver and gold that are God's. And this did, in fact, happen. Under Herod the Great, the temple of Zerubbabel was gradually replaced with more and more elegant buildings. And when it was all completed, the temple enclosure was the glory of the East. But I believe there's something deeper here. I believe this is referring to those that God would later save through Jesus Christ, the promise of salvation. And that increases the glory of the temple How many people are in this room who are believers? How many people across the world are believers? You talk about a glorious temple. That's a glorious temple. God also promised that the final glory of his house, his temple, would be greater than the first. It's past glory. And this goes right along with what I just said, the treasure of nations, salvation. Paul compares the glory of the old covenant with the greater glory of the new covenant in 2 Corinthians 3. But last, God promises peace. I will provide peace in this place. And this refers to the work of Jesus, making peace with God on our behalf, giving us peace with God. We weren't at peace with God when we were lost in sin. We were at war with God. But now we are at peace with God. In addition, we have the peace of God because of what Christ did on the cross. When we put our faith in him, When we accept salvation, we have peace with God. And because of that, we can have peace on earth, regardless of our circumstances. We enjoy the peace of God as we submit to him completely. There's a guy famous by the name of Black Bart. That was what he was known as. He was known as being a professional thief. And just his name struck fear in those of this day and time when they heard it. He terrorized the Wells Fargo stage line. From 1875 to 1883, his name became synonymous with danger on the frontier. Amazingly, he robbed 29 different stagecoach crews, but he did it all without ever firing a shot. Never fired a shot. Here's what he did. He hid his face. He wore a hood over his face. No victim ever saw his face. He never took a hostage. He was never trailed by a sheriff. Instead, he used fear to paralyze his victims. Nobody knew who he was. And you can imagine the legend grew and grew and grew. All he did was put something over his face. He used fear. He used fear of the unknown to paralyze his victims. Word of warning for us. If we live in fear of what may or may not happen, we will be paralyzed in the present. In the present. The fear of the unknown can paralyze us. The antidote to fear is faith. We have to have faith in God and his abilities. And I want to show you how we do that. I have two ropes here, very simple. One of these ropes, you remember gym class? Anybody have to climb the rope in gym class? Y'all remember that? Grand memories, right? Climbing the rope in gym class, among other things in gym class. You'd have this big rope hanging from the ceiling of the gym, and you would have to climb the rope. And in my gym class, it was a big rope, but it was, it was smooth. You know, I mean, it was, it was hefty, but it was much bigger than this, but it was smooth. And it was tough. Not everybody could make it to the top, right? It was hard. 
And, and some people would, some people wouldn't. So if you've got to climb a rope and you just take a smooth rope, that's going to be pretty challenging. You can do it, but it's challenging. I would much rather have a rope. You've seen ropes like this with knots in it, right? Much bigger, but nonetheless. What do the knots do? Gives you something to grab a hold of. All right, now follow me. Think about this. When you're climbing a rope, you're trying to get from here to here, right? Let's think about this as our life. Living in faith. Throughout our lives, we're going to be asked by God to take another step, to move forward. The problem is, we don't really know exactly what's at the top, what's at the end. We may know what He's calling us to, but we don't know all the details. We learn as we go. We have to step out in faith. We don't always know what's going to happen. But every time each one of these knots, represents choosing faith over fear. And when we grab a hold of that, when we trust God, when we choose faith, when we choose to believe in Him, when we choose to act on that, that, that belief, that faith, faith and obedience, we get a little closer to the top. And here's, here's where I'm going with this. If you want to defeat fear with faith, you've got to be close to your Savior. You've got, we've got to have God's presence in our lives. But every time we choose faith over fear, just like we get closer to the top of this rope, we're growing closer to Christ. And he's here. His presence is in your life when you're saved. But you can still walk out of fellowship with him. And he can feel distant. And you can not know him as much as you should. And you'll live in fear. You won't be experiencing his power. But just like every time I grab a hold of one of these knots and climb, I get closer to the top. I'm getting closer to Christ. And I'm, I'm also getting closer to accomplishing the purpose he has for me. So we as individuals, we as a church, every time we choose to trust God and act in faith, we're going to get a little closer to experiencing the plan he has for us. We won't know all of the details of that. He'll give us instructions. Sometimes he will give us glimpses into the future. But what we can know is that when he speaks, when he calls us to action, we have the opportunity to choose faith. We can choose to act in faith. And if we do, we'll experience more of his presence, his power in our lives. And as we do, we'll get closer to experiencing all that he has for us, which again, I believe is a glorious, glorious future for this church, for you as an individual, as a part of God's kingdom work, his plan, and your family. But we have to choose faith. If we will choose faith, it will defeat fear. We won't be afraid. We will be in fellowship with God because of the promise of his presence. And I'm not going to read it all. But Ephesians 4, 6 through 9, peace that passes all understanding. If, if we trust God, we have peace that passes understanding. But don't, you know, read through those verses later, verses 6 through 9. Don't miss what Paul says. One of the keys here is whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any more excellence and, and if there is anything praiseworthy, Dwell on those things and do what you've learned, what you've received. A key to peace is focusing on God, focusing on his truth, dwelling in his truth, living, marinating in his truth, and living, acting in obedience to what he tells us to do because the promise of God's presence is real. And because of that promise, there's no reason for us to be paralyzed by fear. This is living in God's economy. This is what he's trying to teach the nation of Israel. It's what he's trying to teach us today. We can live in man's economy or God's economy. God's economy is unlimited. We can expect to experience his presence, his glory, living in his economy. It was true when Jesus entered the world to save mankind. It was true with the nation of Israel, this remnant acting by the power and presence of God. And it will always be the case, it's true for us, it will always be the case wherever God has promised his presence. He says, I'll be with you always. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Because of the promise of God's presence, we have hope for an amazing future. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for 
the promise that you've given us to be with us. You entered this world when you didn't have to. You laid down your life for our sins when you didn't have to. You were miraculously, powerfully were raised from the dead, defeating death so that we could have victory over death. And if we trust you, if we put our faith in you, we will be saved, set free from the bondage of sin with victory over death and nothing to fear in this life if we will put our faith in you each day, trusting you to provide, depending on you, pursuing you, living in your economy, by your power, by your strength, growing closer to you, more intimate in our relationship with you. Each day, we will discover the power of faith and, and, and what it does to defeat fear. Lord, I pray that we would set our eyes, we would fix our eyes on you, the author, the perfecter of our faith. And as you're perfecting us in this life, preparing us for eternity, Lord, may our trust in you grow. May our fellowship with you grow. May our dependence upon you increase. And may we spend each day passionately pursuing your presence. That begins with responding to the conviction, the call you place on our lives to trust you for salvation. And I pray, Father, that if there's somebody here today who has not put their faith and trust in you, that they would realize in this moment that you, Jesus, are the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by you. You are the only way to get to the Father. The only way anyone, any of us, can find peace, eternal life, security, now and in eternity. Lord, I pray that if there's someone here today or watching online that that describes that they would cry out to you right now in this moment. They don't have to have all the answers. All they have to know is that you, Jesus, are Savior. You died for their sins. You are giving them, offering them the gift of eternal life. All they have to do is invite you into their lives. And then we'll show them what to do next. Lord, I pray in this moment that they would make a decision to trust you. For those of us who do trust you, Lord, may we make a decision right now in this moment, but each day as we live, to choose faith over fear. To choose pursuing you over pursuing anything else. That you would be the first in the center of who we are, everything that we do, our jobs, uh, our schools, our families, our church. God, that we would so crave your presence that we wouldn't be satisfied with anything less. If we do that, Father, we believe your promise that you will be with us. And we look forward with great anticipation to what you're going to do for your kingdom, not ours, your glory, not ours, to see people's lives transformed by your gospel, by your power, and by your presence. Lord, may we respond to your word in this moment in a way that pleases you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.